current world record holder, now working as a race engineer for the powerhouse Ineos Grenadiers cycling team, with the goal of helping other riders on the team be faster than him is quite unique. We found out many unique qualities that you won't want to miss with Dan Bigham as our guest today on Bobby and Jens. Well, welcome Dan Bigham to Bobby and Jens. Hey, thank you for having me, guys. Really looking forward to chatting and uh, talking all things. Expect for our record focus, but maybe a bit of everything cycling. Oh, man. Come on, Dan. Um, you sound like the international man of mystery, you know, fast on the bike, working for Team Ineos as a race engineer. You've got to have an interesting story. So before we dig down into those things, how did you get started in this interesting path that you're on right now? And what is a little bit of your background for our listeners and even our information? Uh, I guess how far do, do we go back? If we really, really kind of rewind... Uh, we go back to sort of my university days. I studied motorsports engineering at Oxford Brooks Uni. I, I always wanted to work in Formula One. That was like the dream. It's where I wanted to go. And I got there for a sort of just over a year placement and kind of realized, uh, what's the, t it just wasn't quite for me. I enjoy it as a, like a, an engineering environment, but at the same time, my cycling was progressing and I wanted, I wanted to push forward on my cycling. I didn't want to spend nights and weekends and all my free time trying to make Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg win some Grand Prix, which don't get me wrong, was great fun. And I learned a huge amount there, but I wanted to be a bit selfish. So I kind of went back to uni and twisted the arm of a few lecturers and let them, or let, they let me do a lot of my modules more tweaked towards cycle sport. So like lap time simulation for motorsport is actually pretty applicable to time trialing for cycling. And that kind of led me more down the, yeah, the engineering path. I left university. I worked for about six months with uh, sports consultancies. I was working with like British athletics and um, loads of basically British Olympic teams trying to help them win medals. And at the same time, my cycling kept progressing. I started to win races like UCI level stuff and just move forward. Uh, so yeah, I went on my own way, set up my own business and then decided to have a go at this track cycling fun <laughs> with a few friends. And we went to the 2017 track national champs in Britain as a, as a four man team. Uh, we, well, I won the individual pursuit in the kilo and then we won the team pursuit, broke the competition record and beat the national team. And that kind of set the ball rolling on, I guess, my athletic career as a cyclist. And that grew arms and legs. We went to UCI World Cups. We won one in our first season, which was pretty cool, uh, beating obviously some of the big nations and progressed and represented Great Britain and our respective nations as well, like Commonwealth Games, World Championships. And that kept moving forward and forward until the UCI decided they wanted to ban trade teams in 2019. They didn't like us on the track anymore. So uh, that was kind of, I guess, our end of the road. We wanted to go to altitude, have a go at a few world records, try and beat the Team Pursuit world record up there. And then COVID hit and that would kind of put pay to it. And yeah, kind of re refocus more on doing towards our record individual time trial stuff throughout COVID. And um, alongside all of that, I've worked with with Canyon Shram as uh, as a race engineer as well. We we won the uh, World Team Time Trial Champs 2018. I moved from there and did quite a bit with Jumbo Visma, with uh, Primoz Roglic, with Joost Wingergo, with Wout Van Aert. I uh, then picked up a, a really awesome gig with uh, Danish Cycle Union into the Tokyo Olympics, which is meant to be about a nine month project, which obviously became a whole lot longer with COVID and the Olympics being delayed, which went, that was probably one of the most enjoyable jobs I've ever had to, to be able to help a lot of really, really nice guys go, try and go and achieve something great. Okay, we finished second by like a, a wheel with uh, in their team pursuit final, but I'm pretty sure everybody watched that with, with great interest. And yeah, off the back of that, and then my British hour record attempt last year where I beat Bradley Wiggins and rode 54.7, uh, I managed to pick up a, a really cool job with, with Ineos Grenadiers. And that's where I am now trying to, to help those guys go fast. And yeah, I guess I'm living the dream. I get to ride my bike go and do raise of cool races and help a load of other people go fast as well. So um, for a better understanding of our listeners or also myself, you're 31 years old now. At what age did you get your first license and how long did you have this double life of being an engineer, working more or less full-time, I suppose, and riding your bike? How long is that double life going on? 
So I'm still 30. I've got about another two oh, weeks. Sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> two more weeks and then, yeah, grand old age of 31. So when did I first get a race license? It's a really good question. I think I'm going to say 2014. So that would be about when you did the hour record. Because I remember watching it with all my university mates. We, used to, we watched every single hour record because it was like a real like flurry. There was yourself, Matthias Brandler, uh, Rowan Dennis, obviously Dowsett and then and Bradley. And it was like such a, a great period. And it was at university. I'd, I'd kind of transitioned. I'd, I'd jumped around through different sports. I'd done athletics, rugby, uh, triathlon, and then settled on cycling. And that was the year that I picked up my license and yeah, moved all through the categories in the UK and progress. But I, I guess cycling for me was, it became really, really significant in my life sort of 2016 when I graduated and I had the time to really focus on it. And then began to appreciate the impact that maths, physics, science, engineering has on performance that you can't really separate them out anymore. They're so intertwined. And uh, yeah, I kind of got a bit carried away. And that was, I guess, when the dual career path of engineer and cyclist sort of began. Well, no offense, but I first heard your name as the boyfriend of Joust Loudon, who set the world's women's hour record in Grenchen in what was that uh, September 30th of 2021 with a distance of what 48.405 and then the next day her boyfriend yourself goes and covers 54.723 kilometers which was faster than Bradley Wiggins national record but not as fast as the record that uh, Victor Campenarts had at 55.0 Eight nine, and honestly, I thought like, did he just do this as a side gig? You know, his girlfriend did it, so he's going to give it a shot. But I, I was so thank you for clearing that up for me in in the research for this podcast. I also went back and said, okay, this wasn't just a a one off. But what did you learn through that event where you beat Bradley's national record, but didn't go and get the the world record? Um, that helped you for future attempts? Uh, I think the entire project over the sort of year and a half, two years running into it, I learned a huge amount. So I, I first did an hour record back in 2014, March. So it was about the same time that, that Jens did his. And that was just a bit of fun at university. Like, how far can you ride for an hour? Just give it a go. When I was 46.9, I think, off the top of my head, outdoor velodrome, just give it a go. And then it, it began to become a big thing in 2020 when we were planning to go up to altitude and then throughout COVID. And I did, would have been four full hours in 2020 and 2021 as practice runs. So like, just go and do the entire thing, learn stuff. So it was not just kind of a wing and a prayer. It was, let's understand the hour in, in every respect. Not, not just aerodynamics and equipment, but like physiology and core temperature and biomechanics and muscle EMG and all the kind of nerdy stuff, like make it a science experiment. And then obviously having Joss, my partner, keen to do it as well. It was like quite a fun project as a couple. Like I think as cyclists, we obviously share a huge amount of similarities in what we do day to day and the training we do and the events we go to. But to actually have like, the same goal 24 hours apart to really tackle as a couple was like really quite good fun and you learn a lot from each other but you also know like the things you're going through the worries you have the questions the stress um and then yeah to go and have that sort of successful 24-hour window where joss broke the world record and, and i took bradley's was yeah pretty awesome I, like ranks up there as like one of the best experiences of my life for sure and learned a huge amount absolutely from that one as well. I knew that it was possible to break the hour record, the world hour record then. I, it was always going to be a stepping stone, at least in my head, to, to try and beat Bradley. I knew at, at that moment I couldn't beat the world hour record. It just wasn't, wasn't possible. And I guess by only beating Brad, I kind of showed that to be true. But 350 meters is, is not that far. So you kind of then go back to the drawing board and start thinking, okay, well, what could I do better? What can I improve in my physiology, in my training, in my equipment, in my execution, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, then obviously joining Ineos, it kind of opens up so many more doors than I could ever access as just a privateer person that couldn't go and knock on Pinarello's door and say, hey, do you mind building me a new bike for, for the hour record? So yeah, it was, uh, it was a great moment. And I think, yeah, it opened those doors and allowed me to, to go and yeah, join the team and to access all those partners. So um, what do you think? Was it one or two changes that made you break the world record or was it just 15 little things? Did you gain at 15 different 
areas you gain 1%? Was it the famous marginal gains or was it one breakthrough? Hey, I changed my diet and that was it. Uh, lots of little things. Although there were some things that were more important than others. So if we were to break it down from my British record to my world record, I would say roughly 50% came from equipment improvements so drag reduction and roughly 50% from physiology execution. And I've always been interested in the drag reduction stuff. And that, that's my bread and butter as an engineer, obviously bikes and wheels and tires and efficiencies. Like that's what I love. I love a spreadsheet, get stuck in. Whereas the physiology, the nutrition, the training, I have a, an interest in it, but not to the same degree. It, it doesn't drive the same like fire in your belly as, as, as nerdy as it sounds to like crack a spreadsheet out and get busy on the engineering. So then joining INEOS, you've got like all these incredibly intelligent people who want to like tell you all these great bits of information that they might not be able to action it. It might not be relevant to road cycling or they might not have had the buy-in and they're like, oh, you should try this. Or if you tried that, or we could do this for a bit of pre-cooling or your training's not perfect in these ways, try these sessions or, or whatever it might be. And just having that input was really, really beneficial to me because I had people who knew what they were on about. I fully trusted them. And they just come in and say, yeah, here's a load of things you, you could do better. And it was like, great. That's all I've ever needed, that, that advice and that knowledge um, to go and apply. And then, yeah, on the equipment side, there was, I think now, uh, one, two, two pieces of equipment that I kept between my British hour and the world hour. Everything else changed. Wheels, tires, frame, skin suit, shoes, crank set, chain rings. Nearly everything. Maybe it was three. So I kept my helmet, I kept my pedals, and I think that's about it. Hmm. And my chain. <laughs> They're the only three things that were the same between the two, and everything else changed, which I think was pretty cool because it was like such a great project to really get stuck into as an engineer. So I joined this team, and it's like, oh, we're we're in the the team of marginal gains. But you've got all these partners and sponsors, and that is my job. My job is to work with them, to help develop equipment for roads, for, for road racing, for time trialing. But it was like quite a nice project for me to meet all these new people, to, to go meet Viracer, Cask and Pinarello and Continental and all, all these partners to go and work with them and to like see their factories, see how they work, see their R&D processes, meet all the people there, and then kind of go, we're doing this cool project, which... Well, I'm going for the hour record and then hopefully at some point soon after Philippe Agana is. So there's kind of a double process to this and I've got a load of ideas. What can we do? And yeah, it was really fun, really rewarding and I guess quite ni nicely controlled on the track. It's nice and simple. We know what's going on. We know our, our flow conditions. We know the powers and the cadences and things. You go out into the big wheel, wide world and things get a lot more complex. But it was, uh, yeah, it was quite fun to really understand all that. And I think going off the back of it for the next well, it's definitely for the next season, obviously the years beyond that, I think we'll be a lot better as a team just from knowing that, from going through that process and knowing all the people. But but knowing and executing are, are two different things. There's very, very few people that know what you know and then execute. You know, to, to our listeners that don't know, you rode 55.548 kilometers in Grenchen and it was streamed live. And I got the the time uh, wrong, so I only caught like your last fifteen minutes because I figured you know I'm gonna for some reason I had it on British time when it was in Grenchen time or whatever. So I said I'm gonna get on fifteen minutes early, and I wound up only watching the last fifteen minutes. But my main takeaways was you looked so in control all the way to the end. I mean, I was there at the track in Grenchen when Yenzi did his record. And um, Yenzi, I love you, brother. But um, Dan, Dan, Dan was a little bit more smooth, especially in that final five to eight minutes. So I'm going to skip over the training, but I need to nerd out. You, you were starting to nerd out, like at my level there for a second, and then you kind of backed up. But like, I need to ask you a couple questions if we can, and you can say no. Um, the first thing that I have to ask is the color pink. You had pink on your skin suit. You had pink on your Princeton Carbon Works wheels, which I need to ask you about those as well. But what's up with the pink? I just like pink. It's the best color, isn't it? <laughs> I yeah, love I it. I think it's great. It's it's just been a theme that I've had ever since I've been in cycling. And I just I really just like the color pink. And it's been on all of our skin suits that I can try and convince teams to, to put it on. Well, obviously, when I ran my own track trade team, we had pink and black. 
because I get to choose. Uh, and then, yeah, with this opportunity, it was like, absolutely, we're going with pink. And my nickname, Piggy, which comes from my surname, Big Ham, which became Small Ham, became Small Pig, became Piggy, and then Piggy's Pink. And yeah, just it all works really nicely as <laughs> as a kind of uh, little moniker. So yeah, Pink, that's why. Okay, now you had a Pinarello prototype bike. Tell us a little bit about what it took to get Pinarello to make you a prototype track bike. <laughs> uh, I think also having Filippo in this project definitely helped in that respect. I think it was just me. Ah, maybe, maybe they would have jumped in it. But when we're like, okay, there's two of us who are going for the hour. I'm going in August, Filippo, at some point in the future. We don't have a fixed date quite yet. But uh, I think that really convinced them, especially we, we had so many ideas that we wanted to throw into it, whereas I think they were pretty happy with the old bike. It obviously had broken the hour record with Bradley. It won the Olympics with with Filippo and the Team Pursuit. It's, it's obviously a quick bike. When you come with the with like, oh, we could do this and we can do that. And there's a lot of people with that kind of progressive, open-minded approach in the team that was, yeah, I think they were like, okay, let's go for it. Let's jump in. And then the timeframes were... I guess, unbelievable if you work in the industry. We, this project began in March. So you're talking like five months to get, to get a bike designed, produced through all the UCI processes. Hence why it was a prototype. So it will be launched in the very near future, but just with the timescales to even just get photographs done. So the bike came to me like a few days before I left to go to Grenchen, which was only a few days before attempting the hour. So it was all so tight that they couldn't even get the bike to the factory to then get it properly painted up and photographed it was that tight time scale uh but yeah they they were properly all in and there's a lot that hasn't been told about the bike yet and i'm quite excited for when they do launch it to talk about all the really nerdy tiny details that make a difference but it's it's really really cool in loads of different ways that are going to be quite fun to talk about when it is announced so my buddy marty crotty from prince, prince and carbon works i had to hit him up when i told him that you were coming on the podcast today and he said that he they designed those wheels for that ride for that bike. Yeah. Like what? Tell me a little bit more about those wheels. So the entire project was designed as a system. So, for example, the bike is ultra narrow. The the dropouts are with like sixty two mil at the front and eighty four at the rear. So super narrow, asymmetric on the rear. So you need a partner who's one willing to go down that path, and then two who are like. We want to run clinches. Like we're flipping a coin between tubeless and running a tube. There's not really any difference in performance between latex and running tubeless. But we knew there was genuinely a performance gain to be had there from a lot of our testing. So it was like, well, no manufacturer in the world makes a track disc that's clincher and that, that wheel spacing. And then we're like, well, if we're going to go down this path, let's go all in. And we, we have a really good CFD package within the team. So uh, one of our aerodynamicists, Luke Cargiano, he developed this awesome online platform called Nabla, uh, called AeroCloud. And we can give it to all our partners at Princeton have access and they can design all their different wheel shapes, tire profiles, the whole lot, and just throw it into CFD, crunch all the numbers and be like, okay, we know this is the fastest setup and we can do it like in 24 hours. So it was just this, this really, really cool iterative process of like, we've got the bike design, we've got the wheel, the tire, let's like optimize it all for this single event. And yeah, it was, again, lots of unique aspects to it. Like even like the bearing size, it's not something you would ever get on a normal wheel. It's significantly bigger, but it just meant we got significantly reduced bearing losses. It was a much stiffer wheel as well. The hub was very, very oversized. Um, just a lot of cool aspects to it that, yeah, kudos to Princeton for getting it over the line. It was very tight. I think they'll admit that as well. We had the first set of the production line arrived 15 minutes before my taxi arrived to take me to the airport to go to Grenchen. And then the second set arrived 24 hours before the hour, which was like the fully balanced finish set. So it, it was very tight, but we got it over the line and they were bloody good wheels okay last geeky question uh i'm sure i'll come back to it but you know yenzi's got some good ones too cda your coefficient of aerodynamic drag you must have calculated this we did a lot of wind tunnel testing testing back in the day but what is your cda with your race setup so race setup cda depends how you calculate it which is a whole other argument but i'm for a short duration effort, about 0 0.150. For a full hour record, it's probably more like 152 to 154. I didn't run a power meter for the hour, so I couldn't tell you exactly. But it's in that ballpark, which basically means my power output for the hour is about 350 watts, give or take. So not that much. 
the the lowest I ever remember seeing when we did the testing on on road guys um, was one point eight, and we were like jumping up and down, like wow, that's amazing. But like one, I'm sorry, point one eight, but you had point one five. That that is impressive. Sorry, Yenzi. Oh, I had to. All good. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I got a, a similar question there. Um, the gearing, what crank lengths you used, and what gear ratio or what the size of your chain ring and sprocket, please? Okay, so my crank arm length was 170 mil, which I run across the board, road, TT, track. And my gear ratio was 64.14, which in inches is, what, 124 inch, which puts my cadence at, I think it was 96 RPM off the top of my head, 96, 97. So I guess relatively big gear, but the cadence is probably in the similar kind of ballpark, probably a little bit lower. I think you were on 54.14 for your hour, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, 54, I believe it was. Yes, 54, yeah. um, maybe 55, but not bigger than that. Fifth, so yep. your cadence would have been 105, 106 um, RPM? I think just 101 or 102. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. And um, what was your average watts? So about 350. So all, all my training runs were sitting about that number. Uh, how, how much did you say? 350, 350. Well, if I remember correctly, my ones were 411. <clears throat> so now, the $1 million question, if you, with your knowledge, would put me back in the, on that day in the same shape I was back then, how much quicker could you make me? Two kilometers so an hour faster? If you have my CDA or I have your power, how fast yeah. do we go? Yeah, exactly. Like, like our combination. <laughs> yeah, how, how quick would we go? The Jens Voigt damn big and bastard child. Like 60k You'd be an not hour. far off. 58, 59k an hour. You'd be pretty close. So you did... I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. You did 60 watts less average and beat me by four kilometers. That's insane. <laughs> awesome. That is awesome. It all True. boils down to aerodynamics, yep. Jensy. CDA, that's why I asked that question. I'd be curious if you could go and find your data and tell us what you're seeing. I would probably look up some of the emails where I got all the data to, to, to check that out. Wow, that's so cool to know. Thanks for answering all these questions. I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm an open book on all this stuff. Like, it's, it's fun to talk about as well because it just kind of lifts the lid. The hour record's been like surrounded in secrecy, hasn't it, for years. No one wants to say the tire pressure, your gear ratio, the mm -hmm. power. You see, everything's all hidden. It's like, well, I can tell you what it was. It doesn't mean it suddenly makes it possible. You'll know how hard the hour is. Just because I rode only 350 watts, it's still a really hard effort. Oh, oh, if you're yeah. riding for an hour, it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. But so many of these world record attempts have always been at altitude, <clears throat> and you were able to smash it, if I can say that. Um, I've never done it, so I don't know what constitutes smashing a record, but it looks like you did. Um, at sea level. So are the days of going up and adjusting to altitude and what, where is it like aqua calientes up in like Peru or something like that? Um, are those days over now that you've done the distance that you've done at sea level? Uh, it was a, an interesting discussion that I had with Filippo back at the start of the year on one of our training camps. So we've been bouncing ideas about for the hour for a little while and he was keen to, to do his at sea level whenever he does it. And to be honest, I felt the same. I think there's a bit more interest in or a bit more weight behind trying to bring a sea level an altitude record back to sea level like it's a kind of double win of like you break the record and you bring it back to sea level which is what joss did with hers the women's record was set up at altitude in aguascalientes and then she brought it back there um i think people will still go at some point up to altitude it, it can be faster it's not a definite like that i think that's the thing and people have gone up there and gone slower than they have gone at sea level but i think that's more about an understanding and a preparation thing so if I ran my numbers, if, if I saw, let's say, a 5% power drop off, I would maybe find nearly one and a half kilometers. But if I saw a 10% power drop off, I'd probably only find 300 meters. And then if I saw like a 12% drop off, then I'd be the same. And then obviously the, your power drop off varies massively at, depending on the person and the altitude you're at. You guys will know you've raced up some pretty big bergs in your time and you'll know that some days you can be great at 2000 meters and some days... It's terrible, and I think that's the the big question mark around altitude. Whereas at sea level, it's a lot easier to to go to a track that could be only a couple hours away, get familiar, get confident. Everything's a bit more consistent, a bit more known. The food's the same. Travel's a lot, lot less stressful. The language barrier as well. If you're going to try and organise a an hour record in Mexico, you're probably going to want somebody who speaks the language, knows everybody in the area. 
it's I think there's more to it than just the altitude benefit. I think there are a lot of negatives and a lot more stresses and, and things to overcome if you if you do go to altitude. Um, actually, I have another question about the, the, the our record before we actually should move on to maybe some other subject as well. How did you communicate with your coach on the track? Uh, how did you know what was your planned lap times and how did you know if you in on your timetable or not? That was that's quite an interesting question. So Johnny Whale, who effectively managed a huge amount of my performance running into it and throughout that week and then on the day. So his background is psychology. He used to be in my team, uh, in the team pursuit. So he was our, our man too in our team pursuit. But he's um, just a really good kind of sports scientist. But his background is psychology. And we discussed loads of different strategies throughout the hour around pacing, around feedback. Uh, and one thing we came to a conclusion on is I need as much quiet as possible for that first 45 minutes. I need to be in my own head, get in that flow state. But it also means that him on track side, he can hear what I'm doing. He can hear my breathing. Am I in control? Am I not? He can see what I'm doing. He can feed back really easily to me because there's no music. There's no speakers. We had 10 people in the crowd. It was a few of my family and some friends, basically. And he would give me my lap split every single lap. So the last digit of my lap split, I don't have to look up. I can ride, ride head down. So if I'm riding, let's say, a 16.2 second lap, he shouts two. If it's a 15.9, he shouts nine. And it just means that every single lap, I know where my pacing is relative to my strategy. So we chunked it out into five minute blocks. So I was going to go out much slower than the record. I was, my plan was to be about 13 seconds slower than Victor after about 15 minutes and then bring that back. And then, so pacing wise, it was a big, big negative split. It meant that, yeah, I've got to be really, really controlled early on and I've got to ride much slower than I need to ride and then pick it up and pick it up. So every five minutes, Johnny would say five minutes, 10 minutes, 15. And then he would say the next lap, he would say, you're seven seconds down, nine seconds down. And then it would start coming back and be like, okay, you're seven down, five down, three down, whatever. You're two seconds up, 10 seconds up. And then obviously you're in that, that challenge state. You can push yourself. And that's why as well, in the last 15 minutes, we let all the crowd go wild. Give me like all the encouragement, all the positive things to think about, all the stuff that really pushes you on when it hurts. Those last 15 minutes, they're the longest 15 minutes. But I'm trying to ride, at that point, I was riding 59, 60, so 56, 56 and a half K an hour for the last half an hour. So I was really pulling back on the record, but that's when you need that encouragement. So it was, yeah, very, very thought out and very strategic in, in the pacing, in the feedback and, and even how the crowd engaged with me throughout. It was all, yeah, very regimental, I guess. What you'd expect from any Oscar it is, all very organized. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from Bellinews.com, access all the premium content from the whole outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. Now back to our chat with Dan. Having a Ferrari with a half a tank of gas is not going to get you to your destination. So I need to ask a little bit about your nutritional protocol prior to this, because you can't eat and you can't drink for an entire hour. And at that intensity, you're only burning glucose. You're not oxidizing fat anymore. And we have limited stores of that. So how much detail went into your nutritional protocol and your, your, your pre say three hours out, four hours out fueling and hydration schedule. If you could share that with I'd us. I'd say even two, three, four days out, it was really, in fact, you know, the entire week running into it was, was detailed. So our, our coach, our nutritionist, ATOR, Uh, he basically laid the entire plan out what I should eat for every single meal for every day, especially with around strategic sessions and then on the actual day itself and running into it, very, very high carb, low residue, low fat. 
just making sure that my carb stores are as full as possible. And then in the run into it as well, keeping as cool as I can, so warming up in air conditioned room, I, ingesting ice slurries, ice vests, big fan. Um, those are little details like that that were pretty cool. Even like having my hands in an ice bucket as soon as I'd finished warming up, because it's one of the, like, the most efficient ways of at least perceptively cooling yourself down. Uh, and then, yeah, carb-wise, I must have taken on, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, I'd have to check back in, but I'm going to say somewhere around 140 grams to 160 grams of carbs in the sort of hour and a half before. So pretty pretty carb-heavy, uh, definitely, and a, a fair amount of hydration. Uh, but I'd done a, a lot of heat training, so I'd done a lot of turbo sessions on the trainer where no fan and just got a paint suit on. So very much like Breaking Bad style. So it's like... Basically, you can't evaporate. You put it over your head the whole lot and you just sweat and sweat and sweat. But it gets your body adapted to that. You're perceptively comfortable in the heat, but also your body can sweat more and it deals better with the heat. So in the entire hour, I, I lost 2.3 kilos, which is obviously quite a bit of sweat, but it means that you can evaporate more water and evaporation is what gets rid of all that excess heat and keeps you cool. So um, I guess the other thing to think about in energy production terms is I'm riding at a lower power than, say, Jens would have done. So energetic-wise, I'm not quite burning out the same calories, but still, it's quite high, um, and there's not much you can do once you once you're in that start gate and you you, you roll out. There's no more interventions. You've just got to ride your bike, and then it relies heavily on your preparation and making sure you've ticked all those boxes. Because if you haven't, at some point, physiology is going to come and bite you in the ass, and normally it's in those those final 15 minutes. So after that successful uh, record-breaking attempt. How many days you couldn't walk? I think I couldn't walk stairs for a day and I was walking slowly for at least three days. How was it for you? Honestly, it wasn't too bad. But by that point, I'd done seven full hours in training in oh. the run into it. So I was fairly like attuned to the effort and quite comfortable in the position. So 90 something percent of my training is in my time trial position. So even my trainer that's behind me, I, I live on it. My TT bike in the extensions, two, three, four hour sessions on the trainer and just get comfortable and get happy with it. And I think I'm not quite so bad then on the fatigue side of things. Don't get me wrong. The very first time I did an hour back in 2014, exactly as you're saying, you can't walk. You can barely get off the bike. Everything hurts. It's, mm -hmm. it's yeah, another world of pain. But I think the more you get used to it, the more you adapt And it's not so bad. It's like the first time you go and do like a hundred mile ride, like you're in pieces. And then after a few months of proper training, suddenly it's okay. And then before you know it, you're racing multiple week stage races, doing that every single day and it, your body's not fussed by it. And I think it was much the same with the hour. My approach was I can't ride at 400 and something watts like a lot of other people can. So I'm going to have to really polish every other aspect of my performance, whether that is nutrition, positional stability, my line, um, my heat adaptation, obviously my aerodynamics. It was like a proper case of marginal gains which i hate that term but it absolutely was well um the team that you work for now Ineos grenadiers coined that term so you better um be careful uh saying that out loud but yeah let's let's move on to your your current role um race engineer in help uh you i I assume that you're there to to help riders improve their aerodynamic performance and, and overall performance in an event like this. Most people, when they break the world record, they're probably getting calls from other teams to say, hey, you know, is this another Bradley Wiggins? Hey, is this another Felipe Ghana? But did you just go back into the belly of the beast there in Manchester and just get right back to work? Um, with no, you said you were selfish at the beginning of the podcast, but that's probably one of the most unselfish things I've ever heard that I can break the world record, but I'm going to help my, some, you know, members of my team of Ineos Grenadiers go even faster. But I get to, I get both sides, right? I've got the record. I've had the record and no one can take that away from you. And it's, then it's more fun from an engineer to then go, well, actually, how far can we push it with one of the best riders in history? Like, how far can you really push the record on? And it might be that you could put it into absolute oblivion. It might be that we've got another rider in three or four years' time who wants to, to give it a go and might even and push it on even further. And I think it's just, I guess it's just my nature. I've always enjoyed helping collectively as a team. And that's why, like, as a team pursuit, I think we did so well because it was, like, such a nice project to see everyone else's flaws and to do all you can to, to help them 
with everything you're in, in within your ability to, to make them faster. And yeah, okay, the week after the hour, I was straight back into work. I was in the winter on Monday with one of our new kids, with Josh Tarling. I was on the velodrome on the Thursday, I had a few meetings. It was like, why, why did I plan this? I, I definitely needed a down week, but it was straight back in at the deep end. And um, it's quite nice now though, because I feel like it's such a big box ticked and like a weight off my shoulders. And also at the same time, got a bit more, I don't think I like respect is really the right term, but like a, a bit more like buy-in for all the stuff that we, the ideas that we bring, because there was so much that we did in that hour record. The idea is to literally transfer that knowledge to the time trial, to the road. And sometimes, I mean, you guys will know, you've had nerds, like when you were riding saying, guys, you need to do this and you need to do that. And they're like, you don't know, you don't ride a bike. Whereas now I can come in and be like, don't worry, it absolutely did work. We broke the world out record and it was me. It wasn't Filippo. So like, you can trust us on this, like it will work. And just means you get a bit better buy-in. It makes your job a little bit easier. And yeah, hopefully at the, at the same time, we'll uh, go and win a few more races and go a bit faster for it. So now when you need to talk about going straight back to work, did like ever somewhere at midnight, did it ever cross your mind? Like in my perfect dream, I would be a bike rider for Ines Grenadiers and I would be trying to win the Olympic, Olympic title or the Tour de France. Bradley Wiggins, he showed that it's apparently possible. So in your wildest dreams, did you ever dream of that? You go, nah, be realistic. I'm 31. This is not going to happen. <laughs> Uh, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't considered it. I definitely have. And I'd spoken with the team about it when I was uh, discussing joining as an engineer and said, like, well, look, I, I ride at the same time. How do we balance this? And it, it was a point of discussion. But I think at the same time, I, I really like the situation I'm in. And having seen especially the, the lifestyle of a professional cyclist, it's it's a lot more stressful. And like you pulled from one country to another country at like the drop of a hat to come and do this race or go and do that race. And you might just be a domestique for six months of the year doing races all over the world. And it's not really why I'm in the sport. I, I came into the sport because I've really, really enjoyed how engineering applied to it. As nerdy as that sounds, that was what brought me into the sport. And we all come into the sport for different reasons. Like, especially you guys, you come in and you've gone through that performance pathway and gone to world tour team. Some people come into the sport and they love it for like the adventuring and like the gravel racing, or some people just like riding to the cafe with their mates with like a really nice bike and it's each to their own. And for me, genuinely, I really like that application of, of science to the sport to make people go faster. And it's always been fun for me as an athlete to see how far I can push myself in both respects. But then the more, when you're in the team, you've got all these subjects, I've got 31 guys who I can help to go fast and they've all got their own goals and ambitions. And I guess it's just always enjoyable to tackle them and be part of the journey and to, to play that role. Whereas riding a bike going, I don't know, taking me to a whatever race, it's, it's not, it doesn't quite, tick the box in the same level don't get me wrong i do enjoy bike racing i've done plenty of road races and stage races and they are great fun but it's not quite where my heart lies and where my passion is within the sport well you deserve to walk around that bus that velodrome that bike race with a certain amount of swagger that i don't think many other people can do so knowing bike riders and knowing that they're always looking to go faster and you being the template for going faster. You just said you're helping, you know, 30 some odd guys try to get better. And now that you have your respect, because I, I now that they, you have their respect, I really have to question, do you just get stopped in every elevator, um, just chatted up at every breakfast and dinner table about, hey, you know, can I get a little bit of your time? Can I get a little bit of your advice? Because I mean, I'm about ready to start hitting you with uh, a couple questions. But what what's it like um, now that you've done this with when you go to these events with the the riders on the team? The active oh, riders the team, team is great, and there's some guys like a good few of them who just love it, and they'll WhatsApp me every day of the week with another question or another idea or something else. And genuinely, it's good fun because. I think it's when someone shows an interest in things you do, it's like, it just, it's enjoyable, isn't it? You can like share your knowledge and, and just sort of do something productive. Uh, and yeah, I, mean, I live in Andorra now where I moved out here to, to be closer to the riders. So I'm out there riding with them, but yeah, just crossing paths with them as well and random training rides and you get chatting. And I think it's much, a much nicer environment as well to be in as an engineer rather than sitting on a bus and having to be prescriptive in that sort of pressured high performance environment i can go and ride out with half the team 
a drop of a hat on any given day and yeah have those really like relaxed conversations and talk a bit more about their their worries their thoughts what they want to work on and yeah there's there's more than I could ever do work-wise within the team there's always something to go and test and there's always a place to go to but I don't think yeah we're short of riders who are keen to buy into that and I think at least I hope over the coming years we can really uh, take a lot of them further forward we've invested heavily in like a lot of younger riders so people like your Magnus Sheffields who are I mean, you call him a young rider. He's, he's out there winning some massive races already. Uh, you're Lucas Platts, you're Ethan Haters, Tom Pidcox. Uh, like, there's tons of them all coming through and they love it. They've grown up in that environment of technology and Facebook and everything else. And they just get it. And it's it's such like a different mindset. Like some of the older guys, it's not that they're against it, but they have to like, it has to be explained to them and they have to understand a bit more and you have to spend a bit of time working through it. Whereas, yeah, the younger kids, they just, they want it all and they want it now and, yeah, it's pretty cool to to have those yeah, really, really pulling at it. So with your busy schedule, do you have time to ride your bike for yourself, only with yourself? Or is every bike ride with another pro to explain him his pedal stroke or how to go faster <laughs> on the bike? Like how much riding can you actually still do with your job in the team? Uh, a reasonable amount, I would say. So I probably train somewhere between 15 and 20 hours a week, depending on what my week's like. So if I have a really good week, I might get a 25 hour weekend and that is like amazing. That's the best week I could possibly have. Uh, but I think I'm very structured in how I train because of that. It's probably not perfect. It's not what a physiologist would say. They'd want a lot more recovery and probably like some lower intensity, longer volume, more volume, but I've got to fit around the fact I have a job. So I spend a lot of time on the trainer. And you can obviously tap out WhatsApps, emails, answer questions, do a bit of work because you're just static and yeah, it makes life a little bit easier to do that. But I, I'd say I can still train a reasonable amount. I'm, I'm pretty happy. I think maybe I could be a little bit better, but equally what I lose on the physiology side, I've gained quite a bit on the other side, on the, on the drag side. I learned so much through my job and can apply it to my own performances as well. And I think I'm a better athlete for the job that I have collectively even though one side of the equation is probably a little bit limited, but I gain so much more on the other. Yeah, I mean, that's the best work environment ever, right? Where you can wake up and, and have that sort of relationship, that sort of inspiration. And that team has always seemed to, to breed that, but you either fit in or you, or you don't on that team. And everything that you've said, your personality, the way that you speak, I can, I can tell that um, it, it just clicks for you. It definitely clicks. So um, another question, you know, because you, you've mentioned Filippo, you've mentioned these other riders and trying to make them better. Um, what is making a rider better nowadays? Is there like a list of priorities where you start here and then it just, you know, progresses deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole or the, the nerdy, the nerdy hole? Is there like a template that you guys have and not that you have to go through it, but I'm just interested, like, where do you start trying to get better for, for our listeners in, in time trials or, you know, track long distance tra track events, like you specialize. I think in? the first thing is to actually have a goal to know what you want to win. And I think sometimes riders don't know that they, they join the sport and obviously you could, you're given the entire breadth. You could be like, do you want to win a classic? Do you want to win a grand tour? Do you want to win a time trial? Do you want to win on the track? And I think it's have a goal. And then you can start to pull all that apart. So that's one of my primary jobs, really. Like, okay, we want to win this race. How do we win it? Whether it's a time trial, team time trial, road race, etc. And you can start to break it down. And the hour record is a really simple one. Power and aero are pretty much the two things you can focus on. But let's say a team time trial, it's like, okay, well, you need to be able to do this power turn on the front at this CDA for this long, but need to have this technical ability. You need to be able to draft this efficiently in all these different positions and work harmoniously as a team. And you can kind of build all these metrics and then you can look at where you are now and then where you need to be. And that's kind of how do we bridge those gaps? So it might be, for example, someone joins the team and they're incredibly aerodynamic. I mean, you could, you could say, I joined the team and they go, ah, oh, right. We're just going to make you train more. Like, don't worry about any wind tunnel testing or anything like that because it's priorities. Whereas most riders join the team, there's a bit of everything to focus on. Some of it might be, yeah, we need to get you into the tunnel working position. We might need to work with like biomechanists and the physiology, uh, the physiotherapists to then work on like uh, your musculature, your stability, um, your general strength. It could be that uh, you're weak technically, you're poor descender, or we need to work more in like team time trial scenarios so you're more confident on the wheel. And it's just kind of, 
having a goal and reverse engineering that entire process of where you are now, where you need to get to, and all the steps in the middle that we need to put in place for you to achieve that. So now that you're an engineer, and uh, just crossed my mind that question, how is it that we have carbon pieces everywhere and we still use the bloody old chain like our grand-grand-grandparents did? Why is that never changed, like to a chef drive or whatever that's called in proper English? Where's the innovation there and when is it coming? Uh, chains are really efficient, surprisingly so. It's one of those, they've stood the test of time for good reason. And I think very rarely do you change to something like shaft drive. I think there's been some interesting ones, like Ceramic Speed had their, uh, I've forgotten what the system was called now, but it had it was shaft drive with bearings. Yeah, yeah I, was, I know, I know. That's why I asked, <coughs> yep. Yeah, and I think they got to maybe 99% efficiency, which if you compare to a track bike, we might get to 98, 98.5. So it is a little bit more efficient, but then there's other complexities. But then it, it could be more aerodynamic. You can obviously hide a shaft into like the chain stay or something like that. But I think... Um, I think the main reason is we're actually regulated to have chains in the UCI, if I remember correctly. Don't hold me to that, but I think off the top of my head, they're not allowed to run shaft driving races. But maybe if that rule was repealed, then we might see stuff like the ceramic speed system coming to the fore. Well, we've heard about your amazing ride, your amazing dream job, uh, your background coming from Formula One and with the Netflix series, you know, Drive to Survive, and then they filmed some sort of bike racing, uh, drive to survive documentary in, uh, during the tour this year, what are the things that frustrate you about the sport that you're just like, why don't we change that? Because you seem to me like a very open-minded forward thinker, but our sport is definitely clouded in, in history and no real reason for doing things. But what are some of the things that if you had like could snap your fingers that you would say, this, this needs to be different. This is going to change. This is going to make the sport better. So your mentioning of drive to survive is probably the best example of what I'm about to say is that we need to learn a lot from formula one and not just in like aerodynamics and that stuff, but like formula one is the biggest sport in the world. It has like the highest fan engagements of anything bar, I think like the super bowl. But it's got an entire season. Everyone loves it. And what they do is they show more of like the personalities, but they show all the data, the technology, the conversations. And it's like everything, the Liz is lifted and you can see inside. <clears throat> and I think having that in a race is what we need in cycling. We need those like cool drone shots. We need onboard cameras. We need race radio. We need all the telemetry of all the riders all the time and be able to show what's happening so that riders, uh, so that Uh, spectators can see underneath and really buy into it and I think you can tell like such a better story about what's happening when you know like the personalities you know the tactics you can see in the peloton what's happening you can even hear what's going on and then you can kind of correlate all that and I think it is such a like a more interesting story than six hours watching Carlton Kirby commentate on everyone following a two-man breakaway through the middle of France it's like we need all of that to add all the color and the interest. And I think that's what I'd change. I'd open that entire thing up and bring, yeah, someone from Formula One in or a lot of people from Formula One and kind of take that approach of let's market every aspect. Let's open the lid on the entire thing and, and really show the sport for what it is and understand all the detail of what's happening. I believe I'm going to hate myself for this question because I probably going to hate the answer, but should, do you think then also we should make the races shorter? I mean, my own children, he said, Dad, we love you. But fuck no, we're not going to watch six hours of you racing. We love you, Dad, but no. We want everything in eight minutes, the start, the crashes, the finish, highlights, and a soundtrack to it. What, what, what do you reckon? I mean, <laughs> sure, I love the long races. It's cycling. It has to be five or six hours. But for the younger, the newer generation to win them over, what do you reckon? Should we have two hours max of racing, two and a half maybe? Uh, it's a good question. I, I think it would be interesting to at least try. And you see it in, in women's cycling, like it completely changes the dynamic of the racing. Their dynamic is very different to men's, but they race over two or three hours, maybe four is a long stage. Whereas the men forward would be relatively short stage in the grand scheme of things. Um, so yeah, why not? I think give it, give it a go. And exactly this, like people want really sharp, really interesting action packed things. So if we're going to make it short, then yeah, throw the climb in straight out the gate. You've got 500 meters and then you're going up a, a like a, a full HC climb. 
And why not? I think Hammer Series tried that previously, didn't they? But maybe didn't quite get the buy-in. But I think we've got to mix the sport up a little bit. Like they've done it in things like cricket, where they were like, we're sick of watching these test matches that go on for days and days and days. Let's do 2020 cricket. Like, why do we not have the 2020 cricket of the cycling world? I think it'd be awesome. Well, Dan, um, my brain is melting. And, um, you know, if it ever goes south there at Ineal Grenadiers or any of the other, you know, high paying fancy jobs, you know, you can always come and join the Bobby and Jens podcast as a technical expert. Um, no doubt about that. But I know it's getting late there. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been so cool to hear like a just a new unique way of doing the sport, looking at the sport and helping other people in the sport. So thank you for being so open and honest with, with all your answers. Uh, thank you for having me guys. Uh, I always enjoy talking about stuff like this. So yeah, it's fun to kind of delve into the details and talk about all the nerdy things we've been up to. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Um, I would actually have two more questions. You can, you can answer them with a yes or no. Very short. Question one, is Joss going to try again? Maybe. <laughs> okay. In 20 years, 20 years down the road, are you going to be working at America's Cup designing new sailboats? Is that a future or is that interest of you? Absolutely. Obviously with Ineos, Ineos Britannia, America's Cup, definitely of interest. Thank you. We're going to keep you in cycling though. When we're <laughs> yes, for some time we, need smart, we need smart <laughs> and young people. Yes, we do. <laughs> Thanks a million again for being our guest and... Just to make you laugh at my expenses, I think you would have lapped me 12 or 14 times with your our record speed. So you are the fastest man on earth at this point. So we are so grateful that you gave us an hour of your time to talk to us. Thanks a million again. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks for Dan Bigham for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Mosa. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. <laughs>